It's the 10th of October, 2015, and this is episode 254. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we sit in again at the recent Scaling Bitcoin conference. This time, we'll catch up on the roundtables covering payment channel, collaboration, the challenges of China, non-currency applications, and more. Enjoy the show. All right, let's uh, get the first presenter up. First, let's have a representative from the Communicating Without Official Structures group come up. Hi, guys. Okay, I'm going to try to find my voice here uh, and losing it. Uh, So I ran this session on communication without official structures. Um, At first, we went through uh, the various channels through which uh, people are now communicating within this community, so things like forums, Reddit, Twitter, mailing lists, blogs, IRC, um, and talked about them a little bit each. Uh, We then noted that... um, There's also the IRL component. We're here right now together. Um, So conferences and meeting together, how there are different forms of communication when you're like using text, for example, than when you're in person. And one of our concerns was that it's a lot easier to read into things uh, negatively when it's just via text. Um, And it it may not be ill intended at all, but people may assume negativity. Um, So when you're in person, it's easier to see things like body language or other means of, of communication. So uh, one of our goals was, um, are there ways in which we can encourage the community to assume good faith in its communication? We also discussed the issue of trolls um, and how there are certain uh, forums where there is trolling within this community. Um, We noted that uh, certain communities can establish a baseline whereby um, the kind of general respect amongst the members is such that you don't necessarily have a lot of trolling um, and we wanted to encourage that kind of thing within the community. We discussed uh, bringing new entrants into this space and how although um, it would be great if you could take the core devs and just clone them and then have them explain everything to every new member of the community, that's difficult. Uh, so we pointed to the uh, concept of systematizing knowledge, and there's another session that we'll hear from, and having better resources for new entrants to the community um, so that then when they enter and they join a mailing list and they have some idea, but somebody's already tried that, they're not just immediately shot down, but instead um, they can kind of be onboarded and brought in um, to the community in a way such that uh, they don't need to necessarily be shot down or or have negativity involved, but it can be productive. Um, We noted that there can be means of um, mentorship or maybe certain ambassadors that may not be, say, involved in core development per se, but can explain to people that are just getting involved or or starting out um, certain resources and certain forums such that they could kind of get up to speed. A lot of this, of course, depends upon having the right resources in order to do so, so I'm really excited to hear what the other session has to say about that. Lastly, we discussed um, a concept of not quite a code of conduct like we've had here, but maybe a a general rallying cry, a code of ethics, or um, a statement that the community could collaborate on and put out um, that people could get behind around collaboration, um, treating each other with respect, um, assuming good faith. We pointed to Wikipedia as the type of community that has had that. Um, it, of course, would be opt-in within the community, but it could be a general ethos or rallying cry for people involved. And sometimes, you know, when you're online and you're tired and you're frustrated, it's easy to forget this kind of thing. But if we can remind people um, of the human nature of those that they're communicating with, um, bring them together in person in forums like these, such that they, they meet in person, and then when their online interactions happen, they remember, this is somebody that I've actually met before. Um, and more generally, if we can get folks within the community to just assume good faith and, and believe that you know everyone is well-intended. If we all want to make Bitcoin better, um, we can get behind this. So several of us decided that we're going to work on this kind of statement or rallying cry or code of something. We don't know exactly what it is yet. And we may put it online, but the goal is to make it very positive um, and to encourage people to collaborate and be respectful. Thanks. Thank you, Elizabeth. You want to give us a quick rallying cry? Sorry. Um, I can 
All right, all right. So next up, let's have uh, payment channels. The initial things we were talking about were the um, soft forks. So some of the changes that need to be made before this is really usable, um, like uh, the check lock time verify, which is pretty much all set. Um, a relative check lock time verify would allow payment channels to be open for ind indefinite lengths, so you can sort of renew them without transactions to the blockchain. And then uh, malleability fix, and that's kind of the trickiest one because it's not so much tricky that anyone dis anyone agree you know thinks there shouldn't be a malleability fix. It's just it's a very interesting direction to go in, and you're like, oh, let's do this too. Let's put in this. Let's do all these fun things. Um, and so then it can get fairly big pretty quick. The, the you know the smallest fix would be something really simple, but while you're making a new sig hash type you might as well make a new signature type. And if you're making a new signature type, how about we have tree signatures and how about, you know, so there's a lot of like, you know, writer bills that want to go on. Um, and so you can have either just sort of a normalized TXID, no TXID, or uh, don't sign your input at all, which allows for some really fun stuff, but maybe too fun. Uh, so that's sort of the worry. Um, so that was the, yeah. Yeah. Melody and we also stuff. talked a little bit about, um, you know, thinking about the usability of payment channels to not just, you know, be on the, the um, layer two, to also think about, like, what the presentation layer looks like for the end user. Um, we also thought, felt that maybe, you know, we need to spend some more time focusing on, like, the UX aspect, exactly how, how the um, flow will be from, like, someone hitting a button on their phone, or they even aware that they're using a payment channel. It's just, like, an application that's, like, proxying a payment channel. We also thought that um, having, like, a list of, like, open problems in this area, that, like, maybe, you know, we, we figured out, like, how you, like, relative time locks, what about, like, routing, how we like handle like routes and you know like DOS attacks and everything like that. Um, the other thing um, that we were talking about is um, uh, outsourcing. That we can't expect you know users to always have a computer on at all times. We need to make sure that outsourcing is there, that it's easy to use, and that um, you know it's compatible. That um, maybe we can like incentivize people to um, just to have outsourcing where they pay someone to stay online for them, or like they have delegates. We have like a group of friends who like you know broadcast other people's transactions for them. Or maybe should we even even have like capabilities where people can like broadcast an old commitment transaction to, you know, educate users of the security parameters on the system itself. Uh, oh, yeah, we talk about, like, presentation, like, are we going to still use Bitcoin addresses? You know, most likely um, it'll be just some alternative encoding. And maybe, you know, when you're requesting a channel through, like, the network, maybe you also give them, like, a backup pub key for the address. Maybe this pub key can also be your identity within the network. So if they can't route to you or something's, like, um, you know, not operational, you can still get that regular Bitcoin payment. So it's kind of like a fallback. Mm -hmm. Failure domain, you know, uh, yeah, routing, routing is probably the, routing and connecting to the network initially are probably the biggest open questions yeah. at this point in that um, you want a very well-connected graph with lots of people who, you know, don't trust each other. Um, you don't want a situation where there's a very small, uh, you don't want a situation where there's a small number of large nodes that, you know, have everyone connected to them uh, because then you're, you know, you lose all that decentralization. So you want it to sort of optimistically just connect to a lot of people and route things that way. Um, and then also, you know, do you, what do you use for initial discovery? Initially, we could just use some kind of IRC channel where people get IP addresses, use some kind of DHT. Um, probably some of the work that's in BitTorrent is going to be really applicable to this. Um, and, you know, then how do you present that to users? Is it going to be some kind of identifier at host is it going to be, you know, a hash-looking thing? Um, so how to, you know, make it usable but also robust and not, like, centralized? Um, and also Tor. You know, you, you want it to be, um, you know, something that people can use on Tor, and that's, like, a pretty good requirement to have for these things. Yeah, and, and like privacy needs to be, um, you know, like a first-class citizen. We need to like um, have like plausible deniability among routes. Um, Tor maybe should be considered like the kind of like de facto transport, and maybe we can have these like locks around it, which you know, Tor being a high latency network um, will still be compatible with those um, uh, with like the time locks and such. Fees, fees is what are we talk about uh, time stop. So that's another. We didn't go into it too much, um, but. There are sort of systemic problems that, you know, any one channel is not such a big deal, but there could be problems when you have a lot of channels going down at once um, due to systemic risk. And so having a time stop where you have sort of a block height, a real block height, and then a sort of adjusted block height um, that the, the transactions could reference uh, would be something to, you know, prevent that. And so a lot of these things we talked about were like crazy edge cases that will probably or almost definitely never be a problem, but you still have to have a solution for them 
because if you have a solution for it, then it'll definitely never be a problem because it's such a far out problem that like why and and you know it's going to be fixed that no one will even try that attack. Um, so you know, and also collaborate collaboration sort of. A bunch of people are implementing these things, all getting together, talking, you know, making sure they're interoperable. It's not like a consensus issue, like with Bitcoin, so that if there are two or three different implementations that don't work with each other, that's okay, but it's just sort of annoying slash disappointing in that uh, you don't need consensus, but it's nice in, if to not have two or three different clients and you go, hold on, let me open my version three client so I can send it to my version two client so I can send it to you. Like, that would be annoying. Yeah. Um, so, there's <laughs> uh, other stuff. Uh, yeah, and then we need to, you know, like um, take time and actually like design these systems correctly because we're designing them for the future. We need to be cautious and not make, you know, um, some shortcuts or some undesirable trade-offs. We need to think about the qualities going forward that can allow, um, you know, these systems to be robust and built upon for higher layers on top of Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. So we don't. I mean, it's it's not a, you know, we need it today. It's better to take a little longer to get a good system. Um, because still, right now, transactions are about two or three cents a transaction, so it's not like everyone's pounding on the door to get it right away. So we have a little bit of runway, a little bit of time to work on this. Mm -hmm. So, um, cool. yeah, that's yeah, everything. That was a All right, cool. thank Thanks. you for that uh, enlightening uh, information. All right, next up, we'll have uh, the uh, interfacing with IETF, W3C, and ISPs. Hey, everybody. So uh, we sat down as a group to try and take a look at what are some of the other organizations out there that we might want to be interfacing or interacting with. And uh, we decided to hell with all of them. No. Uh, what, we, what we found is actually there, there can be a lot of value in us talking to some of the other groups out there that either we're dependent on in some ways or that have some experiences that we can use. And you know, one of the first things that came up as we were talking about it is we see a lot of these organizations um, that have similar characteristics to us, but that also they tend to like self-organize around issues in the same way that we did at the roundtables here today to allow some more focused discussions to happen and allow people to work inside of their area of expertise. And one of the ways that we found that we think that we can work well with those kinds of organizations and get some real benefit to the Bitcoin ecosystem is if we can do a good job of defining some of the problems that we have and challenges that we're trying to deal with, like some of the network issues that we had talked about yesterday, and being able to uh, more quickly get blocks distributed, distributed uh, across the entire ecosystem, that these are things that other groups have already worked through some of the problems on. So like a quick example of that is the challenge that we have of trying to make sure that the block gets everywhere very quickly is very similar to the challenges that CDN networks have in ensuring that they can get content, whether it's live content or cache content, distributed to the corners of the globe as quickly as possible in a very high quality and high fidelity way. Um, so one, we can learn from their experiences, but two, this gives us a really good way to go into these other ecosystems and do some spear phishing for really good developers. Because when we go in and we talk to them about Bitcoin, we don't always get the greatest reception. But if we can go into a group of networking people and say, hey, we have this really cool networking problem that's kind of like CDN and kind of like software-defined networking, except you can't trust anyone else in your network, can you come help us solve that? Um, you actually can get them like hooked on their own technology love rather than necessarily having to convince them that Bitcoin is awesome as the first step. And so as we look at ways to kind of attract people into our ecosystem, this can become a really valuable way to do it. And I think we've actually already pulled some developers from Linux and other places by doing exactly that. Um, you know, also as we see things like the web consortium, is going out and actually working on web payment standards, ensuring that we have representation at those kinds of meetings from some of the people that are working in online payments, so that as those folks are building those standards, um, of course we want them building them in a way that's positive to Bitcoin, but also we need to ensure we coordinate with these standards bodies so that they don't accidentally step on us by not understanding what our needs are appropriately. So, I mean, those are kind of uh, the big takeaway points that we have. So, you know, we think there's value in organizing around topics that help give us better digestible ways to do things, and then using those as leverage points to go and work with these other organizations to get some more help in our ecosystem. So, thanks. All right, thank you very much. Perfect. We'll infiltrate them from the inside. 
next up, we'll have perspectives and challenges on interfacing with China. Well, Jing's coming up. I'd like to take a minute to uh, give a shout out to Jonathan in the back. It's not, you have to give me the information. Well, you can give a round of applause for Jonathan because it's not his birthday today. <laughs> So Skype told me it was his birthday, and so I ripped one of the posters off the wall and tried to get people to sign it. Uh, it's not his birthday. Skype lied. <laughs> um, so basically, um, we didn't actually have that many questions in the roundtable, but um, if you want to do business in China, WeChat is really essential. I think that we've established that. Everyone in China uses WeChat. You can use it to pay each other. You use it to chat. It's like Facebook, Venmo, and Uber all combined into one app. So if you want to do business in China, download WeChat. Um, some of the questions that people asked were regarding um, what the Chinese government feels about people mining Bitcoin in China. And um, apparently, they don't care that much. Uh, the Chinese miners say that uh, in regards to mining, as long as it gives the government some benefit to have Bitcoin, um, they'll do it. So they have a panel of advisors from research, research institutions, universities, advising them on what they should do with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. Um, miners in China also, uh, some people asked what they thought about the whole block size debate, how scalability will affect them. And the miners are saying they don't really care, they don't really understand technical aspects of Bitcoin. They just want y'all to make a decision. <laughs> the way he said it was, Chinese people just want to go with the flow. Just tell us, tell us what your decision is. And um, he asked, so at the end of this conference, you know, it's nearing the end. What's what's the decision? Have they decided? And I was like, uh, wait for Hong Kong. <laughs> um. Latency is a really important parameter for Chinese miners in regards to the protocol. Um, it's counterbalanced with the hash rate percentage for global mining and addressing Chinese miner concern. Um, besides these few points, we didn't really talk about anything else, but if you have any questions, the Chinese miners are really open to talking more over WeChat. <laughs> All right, thank you, Jing. So if you didn't take away anything else, get WeChat. Get a new phone or something for it if you're concerned. Uh, next up, we'll have uh, someone from Systematizing Knowledge come up to share their information. So we've had, I guess, a problem over the last several years since Bitcoin was created where we have an enormous amount of ideas and original research being created. And this isn't very organized. We have websites like Bitcoin Talk, and we've got Reddit, and we've got IRC, we've got various development mailing lists. We have, I guess, a new mailing list on uh, the Linux Foundation, and so on. And it's difficult to index all of this, I guess, um, is a problem that we have. And it's also difficult to bring new people into the Bitcoin community, because it's difficult to point them to anything where they can navigate themselves and figure out what they need to do to, to get up to speed. Um, so we talked a little bit about the different target, the different targets we might have for outreach or for documentation and stuff. So we've got several groups who sort of have very different um, requirements. We've got developers and users and miners are, are of course, people that we all interact with. And then we've also got like professionals who are from other industries who might have applications. Um, we've got policymakers is an important one, and we've also got academics. Um, so people working in university doing research on Bitcoin. And, um, and we have different, we would need to take a different approach in providing information for all these people. The next thing we talked about are problems with the current way that information is organized, um, especially on IRC. Um, so a couple big things are, first of all, is that there are big bottlenecks in producing content. There's a lot of stuff happening, especially around like Bitcoin core development, where there's only like one or two people or for a lot of ideas, there's basically one person who knows what's going on. And often it's the same person for a lot of ideas. Um, so we wind up in a situation where when people want to learn about stuff, the answer is always, oh, just go ask person X, go ask person Y. 
Meanwhile, person X and Y are, are completely swamped and they don't have time. So this is, this is a bottleneck that we're working on improving um, or that we need to improve somehow. Um, and the other thing is the organization, which I've been talking about. Uh, things are just very spread out. Um, so looking towards solutions to this, we talked a lot about, well, first of all, we talked about hiring writers is something I've actually, we've talked about in several sessions. This just sort of came up independently as, you know, how do we get more developers? How do we improve communication, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we should try to hire writers because there's a lot of writers out there. There's more writers out there than there are developers out there, at least available writers. Um, and they're probably a, a, a bit cheaper. Um, and then secondly, overall, what ideas can we copy from academia? So this is kind of an interesting idea because if you ever go to academic conferences, um, academics hate the way that they organize. We hate the peer review process and the journal process. And there's a lot of bureaucracy. It's very slow. It's very formal and it's very hard to work with and, and it's frustrating. But there's actually some pretty good consequences of the academic peer review process. Um, one of these is that if you want to find a new idea, there's basically one place where it is. You can do a journal search and you will locate it. And you'll also be able to locate any responses to that idea um, or any refutations if something was wrong. There's also a culture in academia of formatting your um, proposals in a certain way, in particular describing very carefully how your proposal is new, how it differs from other research, what other sort of related work there is out there, um, and then what ideas that you're building on. Um, and there's a big like cultural taboo about not um, forgetting to do this or failing to cite or, or taking credit for something you didn't do or anything like that. So this is something that's sort of missing in, in Bitcoin to a large extent, um, especially with just things that are, are like posted to Reddit or posted on blogs and stuff. And this contributes to, to the difficulty in organizing information. So we would like, I guess, a way to um, encourage a culture of producing new ideas and describing new ideas in a way that is amenable to finding them and finding related work and finding out how they fit into everything else that's going on. Um, and that was pretty much it. All right, thank you very much. Uh, I thought we were all able to just, you know, read through all of IRC every day. Uh, so next up, we'll have uh, non-currency applications come up. So if someone from that group could uh, join on the stage. Non-currency applications. And I thought this was a Bitcoin conference. Hmm. Who invited these guys? Oh, maybe I did. Uh, program chair, mumble mumble. You're very welcome here. <laughs> hey, so... Um we had uh, a lot to talk about in our group, and there were definitely a, a lot of kind of contentious areas where uh, people don't exactly uh, agree or have a shared view on exactly what's going on now or what the future will be of non-currency applications. Um, we tried to kind of pin a few things down. We talked about, first of all, why are, what, what, what about Bitcoin applies itself well to having non-currency applications. Uh, that, that they mostly rely on the information technology properties of Bitcoin, the, the uh, integrity it provides and the availability it provides. Uh, we want to talk about kind of general areas that we're seeing applications today and uh, applications like notary service and timestamping, copyright, arbitration, identity management, loyalty points, and then any, sort of, and, and any number of various asset management uh, systems. Um, we had a number of kind of big questions about um, what, what sort of applications do we want, and, and that's kind of very open and, uh, and what are appropriate. Um, we looked a lot at, we looked at some at um, what kind of security implications having various applications have on Bitcoin as a whole, uh, various issues that come up from having assets that have value that's distinct from the number of Bitcoins that are in an output. And, and what that means to security, and then also various problems that applications could cause Bitcoin in incentivizing uh, attackers who maybe are more likely to want to attack kind of some specific application and as a byproduct hurt Bitcoin as a whole. Uh, so that's certainly another thing uh, to think about. Um, we tried to split up applications into a number of categories. So we talked about and, and another, but we tried a bunch of different categories. So we went over this a few times. Uh, we th we're thinking about uh, 
applications using trustless time stamping, distributed computation, state consensus. Uh, we weren't really able to agree on any kind of clear categories that could fit everything, which is why we, we ended up talking about a number of different um, methods. Um, yeah, and uh, oh, and just to wrap up, we also talked a little bit about kind of possibilities of uh, various different applications having different levels of security required and, and various options to provide kind of lower security uh, but cheaper uh, provisions for some applications versus higher security and more expensive for others. Uh, so I think that about covers it. Thanks. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by Tokenly and the Spells of Genesis Project. On the last episode, we invited you to win one of the first limited edition collectible LTB card tokens by telling us what setting besides fantasy you'd like to see the next token-based collectible card game set in. We received lots of great answers ranging from ancient history and futurism to games representing charities or endangered animals as collectible cards who benefit each time their card is sold. Here are the winners. Helen, Martin, Sean, Rock, Kai, Brett, Javier, Koji, Coleman, and Dustin. If you heard your name on that list, you'll be notified at letstalkbitcoin.com once the cars have been delivered to you later this weekend. If you didn't hear your name on the list, don't worry. We'll be giving away five LTB cards every month for the next six months, regardless of how much they cost. So you've got lots more opportunities ahead. The magic word for today's show is scale. That's S-C-A-L-E. Scale. You've got until the 17th of October to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. That's all from me. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so we, uh, we talked about four primary things, which was network partitions, um, the block size having coming up, and then uh, failures of centralized things, such as like, what if, what if Coinbase collapses or there's a major hack or something? Um, and then sort of disaster notification, kind of like when the hard fork happened between uh, 0.7 to version or yeah, 0.7. Um, and how do we get how do we get people notified so we can have people working on the problem um, as fast as possible? Uh, so the network partition issues, we were primarily discussing what happens if China puts up like uh, intensifies the Great Firewall of China and just shuts off all communication. Um, you're going to have the China side of the network getting ahead, um, or maybe the hash power is going to be even. You're going to get really long forks, and so you're going to have a reveal where like one side 16 blocks ahead, one side's 18 blocks ahead, and the people on the 16 blocks are like we'd we'd rather keep mining the 16 blocks on the chance that we'll become ahead. And so you could have these really uh, prolonged forks uh, just because they aren't they aren't going to skip. They aren't, they aren't going to give up 16 blocks of rewards uh, just because the other, other side is two blocks ahead. Um, and so those were, oh, and then the other thing is that if one side has much more hash power than the other side, the side without hash power, the transactions are just going to freeze. Um, and you're not going to be able to get, you know, confirmations are going to be meaningless and, uh, and you have to somehow get the transactions across the partition. So we talked about things like, you know, worst case scenario, you can like take mail, like physical mail and mail block headers um, across the partition. But more likely, uh, satellites might be useful, and so your latency goes way up. But at least, at least blocks are getting across the partition, um, or like shortwave radio, or you could set up uh, some. There are there are wireless like Wi-Fi routers that can do point to point over like 500 miles. So maybe you can set up uh, a couple jumps and jump, jump a network partition, um, or use SMS or some form of steganography. So that's sort of what we talked about with network partition. Um, for the block size having, I'm going to start with sort of a lesser problem, which is that the, the final 25 
Bitcoin reward block is going to be more attractive to mine than the first um, than the first twelve and a half coin block. And so miners will never move forward. They're going to keep fighting and trying to steal that twenty-five coin block. Um, and so if this gets really bad, uh, the solution is pretty simple. You just have someone like make time lock transactions that are you know a few blocks in the future um, and get you know, incentivize miners to move past that one that one block snipe. Um, but also, I think I think just in general that that would resolve really quickly and requires specialized software to to do this type of sniping. I don't think most miners are going to implement that. Um, the the more interesting problem is that the reward halves, but the difficulty does not. And so, where electricity is the most expensive cost of mining, suddenly. Uh, it's not profitable for anybody at all because uh, the reward is halved. And so all the miners shut down at the same time, um, which would be a disaster. The chain completely grinds to a halt. And so how do you get around that? Um, and so we were just kind of like hoping miners stay on. Or you like beg them to take a loss for two weeks until the difficulty adjusts. Or you like do a Kickstarter to make transactions that, uh, that have high fees. Um, but then we realized that like, a lot of miners have fixed fixed electricity costs or even fines for not using their electricity. And so they pay, you know, say, 20 grand a month to get a megawatt, and then if they don't use that whole megawatt, um, they they have to pay more than 20 grand a month. They like pay a penalty for not consuming the electricity, and so they these costs are like sunk or fixed. And so we think that actually what's going to happen is the difficulty is going to half, and uh, miners are just going to eat it for for two weeks because their their costs are already fixed, and so. Large, large farms don't actually benefit from shutting down their miners uh, for such a short period. And so I think that this is also not going to be um, a huge issue. Um, centralization failure is, is what I tell this, is just if some centralized service has, has a disaster, Coinbase goes down, coins get stolen, something like that. And we didn't talk about it too much, but we think that primarily it's a PR problem, and we there should be some some sort of process for for responding to these, um, and sort of being being prepared for some service to bring a bad name to Bitcoin and having some sort of reaction. Um, there's also talk, particularly for exchange failure, about preventative measures such as proof of reserve, and uh, the general consensus was that proof of reserve isn't that valuable because say I I, I could just Buy a signature from someone, give them you know a hundred dollars, and then they'll give me a signature that says I own a thousand bitcoins or whatever. Um, and so, proof of reserve can sort of be faked um, using collaboration. Um, so, I think that the best the best alternative that we came up with is that you actually have to combine cryptography and like government regulation um, to sort of protect from centralized service failure. Um, and then finally, we're talking about the notification system. What happens? If, if just something out of the blue goes really wrong, how do we get developers uh, together and, and notify everybody? And so there's no formalized like phone number tree or, or system for contacting everybody. Um, and I think, I think there's, especially from like a, f a federal perspective, federal regulators would like to know that this system exists. And I don't think it would that be that hard to just set up and like have a page that says, okay, if, if something goes wrong, we have people who can contact each other in a tree, and we can get everybody on board, you know, in a few hours. Um, and so, and having like an emergency mailing list, things like that. Um, I will say there is a pretty good track record on previous disasters. I think with the recent fork, you had a bunch of important names like on, you know, online and talking to each other within a few hours. So I think I think that it's it's just formalizing something so that everybody else feels better. Um, but it seems like the system we have in place. Does does a good job informally, um, so that concludes what we talked about. Thank you. All right, thank you very much, David. Next up, let's have uh, challenges for major protocol changes and their benefits. We'll have Vlad for his second presentation of the day. Hey everyone. Um, so we started off talking about hard forks versus soft forks, and then we quickly kind of saw that oh, there are major changes that could be soft forks and minor changes that could be hard forks. Um, but we did also note that a hard fork makes a change more major because it requires lots of software upgrades and coordination that makes it quite difficult. Uh, and then we kind of talked a lot about 
different proposals and like what is what would be good about them and and mostly we spent a bunch of time talking about like the challenges behind getting proposals through and then we started like listing changes to the protocol that could be regarded as relatively major changes and then like particularly you know what would be blocking them and then what would the rewards be and uh, if you want to see that it's on the white on the on the paper in the back uh, you know after after this you could go take a look but I'll just like cover some some of the common themes. So the benefits um, either usually made some feature set work like Lightning Networks or Sidechains or SPV or uh, some blockchain pruning or something like that or they increase performance of uh, Bitcoin as it is like make more transactions per second, make things process faster or not, not be exploitable in certain ways. Uh, and then kind of pretty uniformly the challenges uh, had to do with the fact that like there is isn't a consensus in the community and, and everyone involved as to whether the change should go through, uh, and then that could be because well if there's a hard fork at all then there is immediately going to be like some faction of people who decide okay no this isn't good because it's a it's a hard fork and that's not uh, and hard forks are serious business and we shouldn't be encouraging hard forks as a rule, and then there's technical disagreements. Uh, and there's disagreements based on like ideological grounds or grounds of like uh, their people's like particular goals for what they want from Bitcoin. Uh, and then there's also you know incentive problems in the sense of uh, people think that uh, this this change will benefit this party but not that one, or it'll disproportionately uh, hurt certain businesses. Or sometimes the incentives just aren't clear. It's not clear you know what the result of changes are to like the landscape. So basically all of that makes it hard for the community to agree as to whether a change should be proposed, even though there are usually benefits, although we can argue about them. Uh, and that's like the main thing that makes you know, soft forks and hard forks, and in general, especially major changes to the protocol, difficult. So you know, can we find a way to agree? If so, then that should make things easier. If not, then that's going to continue to be a challenge. But the benefits look like you know, we're all we're constantly thinking of improvements and changes that could be made, and like looking at how things could be better. Uh, so we just need to like agree on how to make it better. You know, good luck. All right, thank you, Vlad. Next up, we will have how we can get ten times the number of cord contributors, education, and resources. Hopefully that will mean 10 times fewer problems. Not the other way around. Unfortunately, as we know, that is not a linear scaling problem. Um, so we actually draw a lot of parallels between uh, the early time in the Linux development community and what's happened in the Bitcoin community. Uh, you have these large entrenched powers that are basically currently responsible. In the Linux world, it was actually Unix prior to Linux. Um, in Bitcoin, it's the, the banking infrastructure, all the financial institutions, the large corporations that have control of data. So we drew a lot of parallels there. Um, we talked about problems such as uh, the industry, the, the parties that are interested in what Bitcoin and blockchain technologies provides. They're not really prioritizing contributions back to the core software. Uh, we found that there were only two industrial or commercial companies in the Bitcoin space that were actually responsible for hiring companies with the other notable, the third notable addition uh, of MIT's effort and uh, pre previous to that, what, what the uh, Bitcoin Foundation did. Uh, so the solutions that we proposed to that were actually uh, asking that people, the, the industry professionals, including some of the newcomers to the industry outside of the Bitcoin industry perhaps, uh, hire a dedicated developer uh, that is solely responsible for contributing back to the Bitcoin core code. Um, not only developers, but hire technical writers uh, to basically encapsulate these ideas and get them into simple, clean formats that are more easily understood by developers and other people alike uh, in a wider range of skill sets. Uh, and furthermore, uh, we talked about uh, this other problem where there's not actually enough talent out there. So there are developers as a whole uh, in the technology community are already in extremely high demand. Uh, with Bitcoin, it's doubly in high demand because the number of developers that uh, are proficient developers and also know sufficient levels of cryptography, distributed systems, 
are, are in even doubly more difficult. Uh, so we suggested uh, sort of investing, these companies, industry companies, investing in the community by hiring interns, uh, helping sponsor mentorships, uh, and that's something that we can do as a community as well. Uh, so those of us who are experts, take someone underneath your wing and provide mentorship and guide them through these things. And that's a start. Um, it doesn't get us to the 10x just yet, but it's a start. Um, one of the other things we talked about was the lack of modularization uh, in the Bitcoin core code base. Uh, and this manifests in a number of different ways. Um, and there are existing efforts to sort of increase the modularization of the Bitcoin core code. But when you have such a small... Uh, a very tightly coupled system, it makes it very difficult for any one change to not impact other parts of the system in unexpected ways. Uh, there, the work that's ongoing includes libconsensus, a uh, very notable effort, but more effort does need to be put into breaking these systems out so that individuals, uh, developers with uh, other domain expertise can move in and change these, change these things with full knowledge that they're not breaking other parts of the system. Uh, we obviously talked about uh, communication problems, uh, and this also has a number of ways of manifesting, which is uh, the information that's, av that's out there and available. Uh, a lot of times it's duplicated, sometimes it's incorrect. Uh, we need to make an effort as a community to consolidate uh, a lot of this information. And one of the best ways that we found of doing this is, is the Bitcoin wiki. This has largely fallen into sort of the, 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 the wings. Uh, we think it would be very beneficial to sort of increase community effort in documenting all of these conversations that have happened on IRC, Bitcoin Wizards, uh, Bitcoin Stack Overflow, and getting the useful chunks of information in this in a in a place where it can go, you, people can go read it without interrupting someone else with the same question the hundredth time. Um, there's also uh, the importance of reducing the information down to something consumable. Uh, so. It's sort of like a, a limiting function. The more people that we have focused on reducing these complex ideas into something that's simpler, uh, so that developers that don't have deep expertise can at least understand the nuances and the complexities of them, and then have the aha moment to where they do know how to contribute meaningfully. Uh, we also talked about the importance of having face-to-face -face meetings. This is uh, obviously something that this, this particular conference is very deeply interested in and is the first real developer-focused event in the entire community. That's really exciting. But it should also take the form of smaller events. Uh, there's a fantastic meetup group in San Francisco, the Bitcoin Developer Meetup Group. We need to see models like that develop elsewhere. We need to see regular occurrences, regular face-to-face -face conversations. These are very important. Uh, com conversational dynamics change when you actually look at the person in the face. Uh, and that's very, very valuable, as I'm sure some of you have learned today uh, and yesterday. Uh, we need more mentorships, as we said, uh, and we want to make a call to, to industry players to uh, actually make a commitment to invest in the future of Bitcoin. This is much more important than your one-year profit returns for your company. This is much more important than your four-year four projections. This is massively important. If you invest in the Bitcoin community, uh, the Bitcoin community will become stronger as a whole, and that's absolutely essential for the long-term success of the vision. Um, also, one of the things we talked about, which was very interesting, was the development of communities, parallel communities in things like altcoins, um, Litecoin and Dogecoin being among the most notable. Uh, I don't know if you guys have noticed how many people simply got involved in crypto finance because of Dogecoin or because of Litecoin. These provide opportunities that are uh, much less high, less risk, lower risk, lower boundary, lower uh, uh, limitations, uh, and allows you to experiment with ideas. And then if you find an innovation, you find something that you, you, you actually learned something, then you can start to step up and move into the larger community. There's also things well beyond Litecoins. There's Open Bazaar. There's technologies and ways that crypto finance and this decentralized movement as a whole is taking place, peer-to-peer um, -peer networks. Those are all testing grounds that we need to integrate with much more deeply. We need to reach out to these communities. Sidechains are a fantastic opportunity for this to test, just like altcoins. But... Uh, we need to reach out to these other parallel communities that are working on very similar things and have very similar visions. And finally, uh, we talked a lot about why people are motivated to participate and, and how do we encourage developers to participate. Um, we do need more capital in the space. We need more people to offer jobs to developers that, are, that want to work on Bitcoin stuff. But I think more importantly is this unified vision that we are all building a better future. 
and that we're all working on that better future together. And that is perhaps the single biggest takeaway that we have. The fact that if we can show people and communicate that the vision of this is a, is a future without uh, these centralized centralized systems, uh, censorship uh, that's taking place, the, the value loss that's taking place, the middlemanship, uh, then more, more developers will definitely get involved. And just people aren't being made aware of that effectively as of yet. Um, we talked a little bit about mentorship, uh, but I just want to highlight MIT's program. Uh, there are, if you are interested in offering mentorship to students or uh, other individuals, other developers, uh, please email bitcoin at mit.edu. Um, they're actively looking for people to provide mentorships. Um, so that's pretty much the, the complete total of what we talked about. Warren? All right, thank you very much. For the record, Bitcoin at MIT.edu goes to me. <laughs> so one thing I kind of heard from that uh, last one is it sounds like it is really important if we have sustainable financing for Bitcoin's future, because uh, you know, we need to be able to you know, pay for things like this event. Uh, so why don't we have Patrick come up to tell us about that? Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for uh, organizing this, all of the organizers. Um, I just want to take a second and maybe just give everybody a round of applause who put in the time and effort to make this happen. Um, and just one quick meta note, this actually this conference, I've said that this year reminds me of 2012 a lot because you know lots of drama, not a lot happening, but a lot of work is happening behind the scenes to set the stage. This conference reminds me a lot of San Jose in 2013 the first big Bitcoin conference, and that set the stage for a tremendous series of events afterwards that really uh, grew Bitcoin in general. So kudos to you for putting on a great show. Um, so we talked about what is, uh, how do we keep, um, how do we fund Bitcoin in a sustainable way, Bitcoin development, Bitcoin infrastructure, all those things. We want to put some parameters around that um, because you could easily find yourself in a space where you're trying to boil an ocean with a candle. Um, so we said, okay, let's cut out things like policy and marketing and, and growing adoption and all that because those aren't essential to Bitcoin operating and running. So we, first we defined what are those things that are critical infrastructure, things that are absolutely critical to make the network actually work and function. So full nodes, you need to have full nodes to propagating transactions. Miners, uh, protocol maintenance, just making sure that the protocol, the uptime of the network is there, uh, and core developers to work on both maintaining the protocol and the network and the software behind it, and also some improvements as needed to, to keep things moving forward. Um, and then how do we measure those costs? Um, what are the true costs of operating those things? I don't know if that exists right now, if somebody's put together just a dashboard to measure what the costs of running all of those elements are, um, and once we have figured out you know, the cost of actually maintaining what exists today, um, what would be the cost then of improving it, even in marginal ways? Um, and then you can start thinking about, okay, if we can measure what the true costs are and the cost of maintaining things and maybe even the cost of making some improvements, um, how are resources today being currently allocated? And how are we sourcing those resources in the first place? Um, so you look at some parts of this ecosystem, like mining, and the incentives are already built in. We've already thought this through, uh, or actually Satoshi thought it through for us. Um, but other, other functions in that ecosystem are not, like full nodes. And we had a great presentation on incentivizing full nodes. Um, and is, should that be a financial incentive or a non-financial incentive? We kind of left that up in the air, but it's something to think about. Um, and where it's not being, those needs aren't being met in protocol maintenance, full nodes, core developers, how do we fill that gap appropriately and is, is money appropriate? In most cases it is. Um, technical writers, we've heard that two times before so I'll say it again. Uh, technical writers and documentation, improving that, that's an area where you can fill the gap with probably with money. Technical writing isn't the sexiest thing. Um, but if it is for anybody in here or, or live, then you know that's a thing to do. Um, and we talked about filling that gap by creating a culture of giving back, right? I think that we've talked about this before, but in the companies that are funded and that get the VC funding or have been generating revenue or mining revenue or whatever it is, developing a culture within the community of giving back, right? Whether it's running full nodes or incentivizing full nodes or, or lending out some of your developer resources 
back to the core development process. Um, that, those are ways that, that some of the companies can give back. Another interesting avenue we, we talked about, and MIT is a great example of this, and this conference is a great example of this, you, leveraging universities and academic institutions. Right? They have different resources than are generally available, um, and uh, we kind of wondered aloud why, why wouldn't every academic institution be running a full node right now? They all should be, and that would solve a lot of problems. Um, and it could also give them access to government grants, since the UK is giving out grants and the NSF is giving out grants. Um, perhaps that's an incentive for them to do things like that. Um, and, and again, just uh, making sure that the funded companies, that when they're raising their money, they think through, in terms of their cost structure, what that giving back is, back to the protocol that they're building on top of. So those are some of the elements we talked about. I'll keep it brief, just because I'm getting towards the end of the day, and I think we're all ready to go. So thank you. All right, thank you, Patrick. Speaking of giving back, how about those Gox coins? Mm. All right, next up we'll have, uh, and last but not least, I should say, scalability of wallet technology. So one of the first, thing, one of the first things we talked about was um, separation of wallet um, from, from the core node and the idea of reusing um, the, the core node um, within other wallets. So the ability to um, embed the core node in, in, in other wallets. The idea of um, having standard interfaces and the, import the importance of running a full node. Um, one of the things we, we discussed was um, the idea of uh, running a full node in appliances like um, your router, like getting, it, getting a node running in your router so that you can access it from everywhere from your mobile. Um, we also uh, discussed the, the uh, uh, we discussed whether SPV is going to stay. Um, how can we incentivize it? Is it possible? Um, the issue the issue of uh, SPV with uh, privacy, uh, security, and the fact that you're not really uh, part of the network. You're, you're a leaf. You're not uh, participating. We discussed the issues of uh, the number of nodes. Um, we also discussed um, what happens if. Um, Let's say tomorrow we have 50,000 new nodes. Is the network going to handle that? Um, how, it, are those nodes going to um, start sinking and take the network down? Um, we discussed the idea of, of um, Oracle services having uh, standard interfaces for multi-signature. Um, we also discussed um, the, the problem with support. So. Um, it's, it's hard to have uh, customer services with open source software. So are we going to have some Red Hat model? Or um, how, how is it going to work for, um, for software? So today, um, most of the companies that offer a wallet go beyond their applications uh, in order to support the customers. Is that how um, is it, it's going to work in the future? And this was about it. I mean, we, we discussed how important it is to run a full node and how is that going to work in a mobile future um, and, and things like um, UTXO commitments and whether those are going to improve the situation. And um, yeah, we discussed what if Apple tomorrow includes a full node in, in their software. Like, what if um, uh, we have 50,000 new, uh, new nodes syncing at once? And yeah, that was about it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by the many speakers at the recent Scaling Bitcoin event. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and Adam B. Levine. This episode was very lightly edited by Adam B. Levine. If you have any questions or comments, you can always email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.